right. Well, we're going to be in Genesis 17 today. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles there. Um, I, I didn't write down the page number in the Pew Bible, but there are Bibles in the chair backs in front of you somewhere nearby if you need one. So one way, as you're flipping there, one way to th- think about and talk about the theme of the Bible, not, not just Genesis, but the whole thing. What's this whole thing about? Because like the Bible Project says, we believe the Bible is a unified story that's all about Jesus. So what's the story about? What's the theme? One way to talk about that is the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus talked about most. So when Jesus came and preached, his whole ministry began by him saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. All the Sermon on the Mount, all these great teachings of Christ were about the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, we can sum it up in four ways. Nope, that would be four different summations. We can sum it up in one way with four parts. (laughs) And that is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, with God's blessing. That's the kingdom of God overall. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, with God's blessing. So think back with me to the first few chapters of Genesis. What was the kingdom of God like in Genesis 1 and 2? It was God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, which was a garden in Eden. And they were under God's rule. They were submissive to him and they followed his rule. And he gave them commands of what to eat and what not to eat. And then they were with God's blessing. He walked with them. He was God to them. They had a relationship. So first we learn in Genesis 1 that humans are created in the image of God. In other words, we're meant to be reflectors of God's glory in this world, like the moon reflects the sun's light. Then we learn that he wants us moon-like glory reflectors to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is Genesis 1.28. In other words, God from the beginning is radically committed to filling the earth with his glory and goodness through humans. But in Genesis 3, we see that God's people get exiled from God's place because they rejected God's rule. And they just said no thank you to God's blessing. But that's not the end of the story. That's just the very beginning of the story because God is teeming with grace and mercy. So he promises an offspring Genesis 3.15, a seed of the woman. He promised to send someone who would come and defeat sin and death. Defeat the serpent who introduced even the idea that we can reject God's rule. And the question since Genesis 3 then has been, who will the seed of the woman be? Who's it going to be? And which family is it going to come through? Because now Adam and Eve have multiplied into this great population of a planet. So where is the seed of the woman going to come from? And we see it's this big narrowing down from Genesis 4 to Genesis 17, where we're at now. It's been narrowed down from, you know, Adam and Eve and kind of everyone down to Seth's line, their third son. And through the 10 generations of Seth's line down to Noah and his family. And then out of Noah's three sons, it's narrowed down to Shem and his family. And from Shem's sons, it's narrowed down to one man whose wife is barren. 
And if you don't feel the irony of that, just think about that. And that man is Abram. And then God makes these amazing promises to Abram. Promises to make him a great people, give him a great name, to give him a special place, and to bless him and make him a blessing to the whole world. Do you hear the kingdom of God themes echoing through in people and place? And now we're coming up to the climactic moment in the story of Abram, or kind of the climactic few moments. There's about three episodes that are shattering um, in our paradigms here that we're coming to. And in this scene, we're going to see Abram renamed to Abraham to show that God is making good on his word and that Abraham is like a new creation. And we're about to see God make a covenant and confirm a covenant so sure and so certain that it's ratified in Abram's own body with blood. And it's the the sign of this covenant. So without further ado, let's read Genesis 17, uh, 1 through 14. And I hope to show you this morning with God's help that God's covenant with Abraham shows us a glimpse of God's grace and mercy in Jesus in the new covenant. That's, That's where we're going with this. Side note, the reason why I'm reading the first half and not the full thing, I generally would just read the full thing, the full chapter, is because this chapter is chiastic, and it's it's a reflective shape. So the first half is reflected in the second half uh, such that it just reinforces the same point. So read it, do read the the full chapter, but um, hopefully we're not skipping anything terribly. So Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
This is the word of God Almighty. Thanks be to God. Now, here's the roadmap of where we're going to go this morning. Um, we're going to ask these four kingdom questions about this passage. And yes, uh, you heard the word circumcised a lot of times. It's because it's the point. So we're going to get to that as well. Uh, but the four questions are, who are God's people? What is God's place? What are God's rules? And what is God's blessing? People, place, rules, and blessings. So let's just jump into number one. Who are God's people? Now, so far in the Abraham stories, God has told him that he's going to have a lot of descendants. We saw it in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, but now God is upping the ante. In verse 2, God says that he'll multiply him greatly. In verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Uh, and just as a side note, remember in Genesis 1.28, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, that was a second person command. You do it. You be fruitful. And now he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Abram's name was Avram, exalted father. But now he's Avraham, father of a crowd, father of a multitude. Whole nations and whole kingly dynasties are going to come from this guy and from his barren wife, Sarai. And Sarai also, by the way, gets renamed. It's in the second half that we didn't read. God says, no longer shall you call her Sarai, but Sarah will be her name. Now, Sarai means princess, and Sarah means princess also, which is confusing at first. But the difference is because Sarai looks back to her noble lineage and says, look at the descent that she's come through. She's nobility. She's royal. Sarah looks forward to her royal offspring. This is a, a queenly mother of kings. So in the kingdom of God, the people of God, if we're listening to the plural nations and kings, the people of God are made up of more than one nation, which means Israel never had the right to just say, we are it, right? That's, that was never the point. Then verses 12 and 13 tell us that not only will Abraham's blood relations, his physical descendants, uh, receive the sign of the covenant, but even foreigners who are sojourning in their midst, get the sign of the covenant applied. Anyone in connection with the family of faith can be a part of this covenant. So everyone in the kingdom of God, and you get into the kingdom of God through covenant, everyone in the kingdom of God is a child of Abraham. But not everyone is a child of Abraham physically. Does that make sense? Uh, like Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You hear that? Romans 4, 16 through 17. Talking about this passage, Paul says, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence 
the things that do not exist. So everyone who has faith is a child of Abraham. You, if you believe in Jesus, are part of Abraham's family. And that means this is also about you. Everyone who believes God is counted as righteous, like Abraham was, and brought into the kingdom of God. So who are the people of God then? Anyone who believes. Everyone who believes. We must never draw the lines around anything else but faith in Christ. Who's in and who's out? God says, faith in Jesus. Those are the lines in the sand. Who are we to redraw them around, well, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or whatever, around people who look like us, think like us, listen to the same music like us, worship like us, raise their hands when they sing, kneel when they pray, whatever. That's not where the lines are. The lines aren't, are you Reformed or are you Arminian? That's not it. It's faith in Jesus. And he's going to put people in the family of Abraham from all kinds of surprising places. But that naturally does lead us to wondering uh, who's in and who's out. Who really believes then, right? You've got a, a community like this. I don't know, there's 55, 60 of us sometimes on a good Sunday here. And even then at this size, we tend to look around sometimes and think, I wonder if they're really a Christian. Let me admit it, right? Well, Jesus told a parable about that. And he said, this farmer sows really good seed in his field. And at night, the enemy creeps in and sows bad seed in his field. And so the disciples or the, the farmer's workers are like, well, let's just go and weed it. Let's just take out the bad seed as it starts to grow because we don't want them growing together. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. If you go in and try to take out the bad seed, you're going to take out some of the good seed too because those farm hands are kind of clumsy. So Jesus says, let the good seed and the bad seed grow up together. It'll be okay. The bad seed's not going to hurt the good seed. And in harvest day, I will send my workers and we'll sort it out. And the good seed will be put in the barn and the bad crop will be burnt. And it's all going to be okay. I will sort it out, God says. It's not our job. It's not our job. And then, this is a side note, I'm sorry, but lest we get too concerned about the bad seed and the burning, Jesus tells two more parables that follow directly after that are very encouraging. For instance, the kingdom of God is also like a measure of flour in which a woman hides a little bit of leaven. And that little bit of leaven in the kingdom works through the whole thing and transforms it. Jesus doesn't want us to despair about the seed. He wants us to leave it in his hands. And let the lines be what the lines are. Faith in Christ. And God will sort the rest out. So, number one, God's people. Number two, where is God's place? Um, look with me again at Genesis 17, verse 8. God says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Uh, so God is establishing his kingdom, 
in this passage, but don't make the mistake of thinking that the Abrahamic promise is the sum total of all the promises made to and fulfilled in Jesus. By which I mean, our future hope of an inheritance in Christ is not merely a patch of land in the Middle East. It's so much more than that. Um, There's a lot, uh, for instance, a clue in this passage. God says to Abram, uh, the land of your sojournings, plural, which means Abram's and all of his offsprings. Well, who's a child of Abraham? Anyone who believes. Where have you sojourned? Scotland. <laughs> yeah, I want Scotland in the resurrection. <laughs> Tennessee, California, Washington, Edinburgh, wherever. Abraham's family have sojourned all over this green planet. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, the place that God's people were uh, in was the garden in Eden, but that was not the sum total of the promise to them either. Remember, God commanded them to fill the whole earth. So Eden was like a staging ground out of which they can move to fill the ends of the earth and bring God's glory there. And now God's covenant with Abraham Uh, God is promising to give him this one small piece of land called Canaan, but that's not the end of the story because that the heart of the land of Canaan would become like a garden city out of which we could go and fill the earth, like he says to in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So I don't know what your idea of life after death is. Uh, Maybe it's, if you're my age-ish, your parents might have taught you something like, floating on a cloud with a harp in a robe, singing praise songs for all eternity. That's not what the Bible says our future is. The Bible says in Romans 8 that the whole creation is groaning, waiting eagerly for what? The revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? It means that when the kingdom of God is made complete and perfect and whole, when Jesus comes again, the day of the harvest, then the sons of God, the children of Abraham, will be raised from the dead, like Jesus was, and then the whole creation, the new heavens and the new earth, will finally come under the rule of people who reflect the glory of God perfectly. It will be entrusted into the hands of of perfected saints who will rule like a gentle gardener tending his garden so it will flourish and flower. When you believe on Jesus for your salvation, you become a child of Abraham, you get into the kingdom of God, you are his people, and then you will receive God's place. And it's much bigger than Canaan. The New Testament teaches that all things were created by and for Jesus. So all things are Christ's. And you are in Christ. And Christ is yours. So all things are yours. All things. So people, place. Number three, what are God's rules? As we've already said... This morning, um, the way we enter the kingdom of God is through a covenant with God, like we, the video we watched with the kids. So imagine Russia 
right now trying to get into NATO? Um, not likely. What would that take, though? It would take a formal commitment, a serious commitment, with serious vows and rules and consequences. Right? And that's basically what a covenant is. It's a partnership. It's more intimate and loving than a contract, but it's more binding and safe than a relationship. It's a covenant. They're two-way relationships, with one exception, like we saw in the Old Testament. Noah is it's what we call a unilateral covenant. God takes all the terms and conditions on himself. Everything else, we call it a bilateral covenant. It's a two-way street because God, he's relational. He's personal. So in this covenant-forming passage, we don't just get promises. We get promises and obligations promises and commitments. So there's, there's actually seven I wills from God and three you musts. Seven I wills and three you musts. And you're welcome. I almost preached a 10-point sermon on that, but I thought 10 points was too many. So, <laughs> so even though this is a covenant of grace, uh, something that God initiated, something that God will see through, uh, even though that's true, it's also a real relationship. And relationship means a back and forth. We commit to each other, don't we? So God makes promises and we have obligations. But listen, do not confuse I will and you must with I won't if you don't. Let me say that again. Don't confuse I will and you must with I won't if you don't. Because God is not sitting back waiting for us to take the first step. God is not waiting for us to earn his covenant. He's not waiting for us to deserve a place in the kingdom of God. We get in and we stay in by grace. Jesus keeps us. God sustains us. But we do have real obligations because he's a real person. So there are three obligations in this passage, the three you musts. And I'm going to Move, the, move through these more quickly than they deserve because, I, you know, time. Um, but let's listen closely because these are vital, life-changing obligations. They're the sort of things that if the Spirit pokes at our heart as we hear these simple words with conviction, then we need to repent. The first obligation, God says, walk before me. Walk before me. To do something before God in the Old Testament means to do something face to face with that kind of presence, that kind of awareness. We, you know, we often teach our kids integrity is, how do we say it now? I'm blanking on how we say that. It's doing the same things in secret that you would do in public, out in the open. That's what we're talking about. Not integrity for integrity's sake, but walk before God like he's right here in the room with you. Like, why do we talk about God like he's not in the room? He's right here. Let's live like it. Walk before God. Treat him like he's real. 
He's the most deeply real person that exists. He's the I am. Walk before me. The second obligation is be blameless. That one hits hard at first glance. We talked about it in our call to worship this morning. This being blameless, the word is tamim. It doesn't mean to be morally perfect. It doesn't mean there can't be anything brought against your, you know, to say this, this person, um, yeah, you get what I'm saying. It's not a perfect record of stainless, spotless moral obedience. Tamim, blameless, means to be all in with God. It means he's your everything. It means to be wholehearted. It means to put all your weight on God. That's what blameless means. It's to belong wholly to him, not perfectly, but wholeheartedly. So walk before me, be blameless. And the third obligation is God says, keep my covenant. By doing what? By circumcising. In other words, receive the covenant and apply the sign of the covenant. So when God makes a covenant with his people, he gives them a sign, right? The, uh, the sign of Noah's covenant was a rainbow. Um, we kind of mimic after this when we get married and we give each other wedding rings. That's a sign of our covenant commitment to each other. Does it actually mean anything? No. Felt weird taking it off though, just now. It doesn't actually, it's not magic, but it really means something to our marriage because it's a sign of something real. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant that he would bring the rescuer, that God would bring the rescuer of the world through Abraham's family line. The sign was circumcision, a cutting off of the foreskin on the reproductive organ. And strangely enough, the, the sign of Noah, the rainbow, and the sign of circumcision, these two covenants, they're actually weirdly related. So back in Genesis 9:11, God said to Noah, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be, here's the key words, cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So when God brought the flood, he did it. It doesn't say he did it to wash away, which is what I would think, right? If I were writing this, I would say, I'm going to send the flood to wash away the wicked. No, he said to cut off. That's what circumcision was always meant to point to, not the flood, but cutting off of the wicked. It's a symbol of inclusion in God's family because in God's family, all have to be blameless. All have to walk before God. So we have to cut off anything that's not. So circumcision is a sign of inclusion in God's family and a cutting off of sin and wickedness. That's why throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God keeps telling his people, circumcision of the flesh isn't the point. It's not what I'm actually after. I want circumcision of your hearts. Now you, can't, you can push that metaphor ever so slightly and it breaks if you're thinking about organs. But if what he means is take your heart, the, the engine that drives you, and cut off everything that's wicked and impure from it. That's what God wants from us. He says that in Deuteronomy a couple times. He says that in Jeremiah. And in Romans, in the New Testament, Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul's making the same point. 
He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Going back to our text, Genesis 17, 14, God says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Do you hear that? Cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, cut off or be cut off. This is serious. There's no room in the covenant family of God for people who say, I've said the right things and I've done the outward signs, but you can't tell me how to be. You can't tell me how to live, God. There's no room for that. That's not what God's family is. God's incredible I will promises are meant to transform us into people who obey and submit to his lordship because he's been just so ridiculously good to us time and time again. So these covenant consequences are serious because ultimately it's looking at the promises and goodness of God and saying, eh, not that good, not that merciful. They're serious. If we don't cut off, we will be cut off. But here's the thing. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, just like it said to. So he was outwardly circumcised. And Jesus was pure of heart. He was inwardly circumcised. And the substance of the metaphor. He was upright. He had no wickedness in him. And yet, when he hung up on the cross, he took our sin and wickedness on himself. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we should have been cut off, but he was cut off for us. Cut off from his people, cut off from his God, cut off from blessings, cut off from life. The true and better Abraham became uncircumcision so that we could become inwardly the family of Abraham. Now, the night before Jesus was betrayed to the cross, he had a Passover dinner with his disciples, and he said wildly that he was instituting a new covenant. A new covenant. This one wouldn't be uh, the blood of animal sacrifices, wouldn't be in the blood of the circumcision ritual. That's not going to be the sign of this covenant. It's a new covenant in his blood. And in this new covenant, remember we said God, when he makes a covenant, he gives a sign. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. The New Testament insists that there's an incredibly strong connection between baptism and circumcision, so much so that our new marching orders from Jesus 
aren't go forth and circumcise everybody, right? They're go and make disciples and baptize them. Those are our marching orders. Just as circumcision signified the entrance into the covenant family of God, now baptism is the sign of entrance into the covenant family. Circumcision was a bloody representation of cutting off sinful flesh, but baptism is the new covenant representation of washing and cleansing us, making us pure. Circumcision pointed to being cut off. Baptism points to being buried and resurrected with Christ. Colossians 2, 11 through 12 says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Whoa. Do you notice the past tense? Paul just said, you were raised with Christ. Here we are walking around in these mortal bodies that are going to end up in the ground one day. But in the mind of God, you're as good as resurrected in Christ because he became uncircumcision for us. Uh, Lastly, number four, what is God's blessing? Now, we've talked about God's people and God's place under God's rule and with God's rules. So now we're going to just ask, talk about blessing. And it's summed up at the end of verse eight. It's summed up three times, but this most succinctly. End of verse eight, I will be their God. He's God. He just is God, right? That's, we first meet God in the Bible. His title is God. God. He doesn't need you to be God, but he will be your God. That's very personal. (laughs) No thanks, I'm good. (laughs) The blessing in the kingdom of God is God. You get God himself. Personal, intimate, loving relationship with God. A union so deep and profound that Peter says that we are made partakers of the divine nature. A blessing so remarkable that Jesus in John 17 prayed that we might be caught up in the very life of the Trinity itself. That kind of blessing. We, I don't have words for it. <laughs> Language breaks when you try to even fathom being partakers of the divine nature with the God who inhabits eternity. Jonathan Edwards would talk about if we could see the glory of God right now, bare eyes, we burn with joy. It would consume us with joy and beauty. He's too splendid. He's too glorious. And in Christ, God has found a way to give you all of his splendid, glorious, radiant, shining self and not destroy you because he's so good that it would. The blessing is we get God himself. We talked about, uh, there are seven I will promises. Um, 
I didn't read through them all, but they're, they're in the text uh, with the words, I will. So you can look at them. Seven I will promises that Abraham receives from God in the Abrahamic covenant. But now in the new covenant, we get more and better. So let me give you just seven of the promises that Jesus himself makes to us. Number one, Jesus promises to give eternal life, eternal life to everyone who believes in him. John 5, 24. Number two, Jesus promises to give you world-defying, circumstance-baffling peace. John 14, 27. Number three, Jesus promises to comfort you personally in times of sorrow and distress. Matthew 5, 4. Jesus promises, number four, to send us his Holy Spirit. John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus promises, number five, to give you power to live for him. Acts 1, 8. Number six, Jesus promises to give us protection to keep you. John 10, 28. And lastly, number seven, Jesus promises to be with you forever. Matthew 28, 20. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You become God's people. You will inherit and live in God's place forever. You will thrive and flourish under God's rule. And you will receive the unending, undying blessing and promises of God in Christ. So I ask you, are you in the kingdom? The only line in the sand is faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our Redeemer, fully man and fully God. You are the seed of the woman who has crushed the enemy and freed us from sin and death. And you are our king. And so we submit to you and we delight in your lordship and we trust you and we'll follow you. But please keep your promises to us. Send us your spirit, send us power, comfort us, give us life, protect us, be with us so that you can get the glory. Amen.